Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Lemon, a drug addict and an alcoholic. I'm also a voluntary member of uh, the, ca- the a member of the Catavan Club for Alcoholics. Um, Hakeem, I'm proof that you don't have to have lost any license to become a voluntary member. Anyway, when Joe called me up and asked me to speak here, my, my first reaction was immediate, no, inside my brain. This is my first IDAA convention, and I really wanted to be a spectator. Having learned some things in, in AA, I, I found one thing that I know is that this is anything but a spectator sport. So I graciously, graciously volunteered to speak. Then when he told me what step I, I was to speak on, step seven, I, like Hakeem, went, went back and, and read it and humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And then I thought, well, what's this guy trying to tell me? Do I have some shortcomings? Nah, it was just a coincidence. Well, I also know that there are no coincidences, uh, especially in this program. The step is, is, can be divided into two areas. Uh, one is um, having to rely on, on a divine higher power, and we already covered that in, in the earlier steps. I'm not going to talk about that. The second portion uh, that I will speak about is humility. Being a, you know, a true uh, alcoholic and drug addict, I, I procrastinated right up to the last minute to, to find out what I was going to talk about. And last night during that tremendous storm, I'm sitting around thinking about humility. And I don't know if any of you witnessed the storm, but, you know, it, it's impressive, I guess, as, as storms can go. And I thought about the 50 million volts in each strike and uh, hundreds to thousands of, of strikes in, in each storm. And I thought, well, that's only a small fraction of, of the power of the universe. Uh, and I thought, well, that's humbling. But I'm not going to talk about that today. And then I started going through my, my different roles, uh, and, and I came upon uh, my role as a physician. And I thought, well, that's a humbling experience. Not many people, I think, believe that, that physicians are humble people. But in, in my own life, I'm humbled every day. Those pe- patients uh, who are very sick and, and you've almost written off and said they're not going to make it, they, they can live. Those people who aren't that sick seem to die sometimes. And that that's humbling. But I chose not to speak about that. So then I thought of my role um, in marriage uh, as a husband of going on eight years now. And I thought, that's a humbling experience. Uh, you know, marriage is give and take for all of you who are married out there. And, but give and take seems to imply a 50-50, you know, give and take. Uh, any of you who are divorced out there know that it's not a 50-50 proposition. And Lord knows I've taken 100% during many of the years that I was active out there. And now it's my turn to give that. But I'm not going to talk about that. Then I thought of my role as father. Uh, two of my three children are out there now. And believe me, that's a humbling experience. Uh, they're still young and one's still in diapers. So I thought about all the, the doo-doo I've cleaned up. And even to the point where I'm speaking to my pa- patients, I asked them when their last boom-boom was. But uh, right down to even last night when, when my 39-year-old Will and my my daughter's seven-year-old Will clashed and, and, and culminated to the point where she was going to run away from the camper that we're staying in while we're here and go live with Dee Dee. Uh, it, you know, to sit down and to apologize and, and to try to make things right, it's, it's a humbling experience. But I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> oh, by the way, Dee Dee, we made up, so you, you can't have her. Um, and then I went on to something that I know everybody from New Jersey would definitely understand as a humbling experience. 
but that's a too limited group. Um, what I'm talking about is dealing with the motor vehicle authority or driving on the parkway to the turnpike. So only the people in New Jersey would get that. Uh, while I was going through all this, a song came on the radio, and it was a song written and sung by, by Eric Clapton. And uh, the title of the song is There Are No Tears in Heaven. And two of the lines, uh, well, one of the lines is just, you know, if, well, I know your name, if I see you in heaven, will things be the same? One of my morbid fears in life is that someday uh, God may take one of my children. Um, it's an irrational fear. Uh, I, I'm not sure of the basis, but it's there. Uh, Terry, one of the members of my physician's group, helped me uh, helped me start to deal with this in, in a way that I'm sure she's not even aware. She told a story one time about early in her recovery when she got up and she went to brush her teeth and, and on the mirror was a little note that was folded over and it said, Dear Terry, I just want to let you know that I'll get along fine today without your help. And it was signed, God. After she said that, I, I thought about my life and right from the age of, of six years old, um, when I decided, around four to six, when I decided what I wanted to be, and I wanted to be a, a priest, that I was taking on a divine role. I wanted to be a priest because I wanted to save the world. In my innocent, blasphemous way, I, I not only wanted to be a priest, but I wanted to be the next coming of Jesus Christ. And that was fine for me, and I, I could deal with that. I became an altar boy, and I, I did everything that was expected of me. At about the age of 11 or 12, I guess hormones kicked in, and I realized the Roman Catholic priest, I never saw any of them married, so uh, I decided that wouldn't be the way for me to save the world. And, you know, I sat down, my, my little uh, my little conscious self, and, and I came up with my next choice, and that was to become a physician, and I've, I've stuck with that uh, through this day. I was a middle child in a slightly dysfunctional family. Now, if there's anybody in this room or if anybody knows a non-dysfunctional family, please point one out, um, because I've heard a lot of people use that. But I, I was always the person in the middle that, that would try to bridge the gap between my parents and my brother, between my sister and my brother, between my sister and my parents. And I, eventually I failed miserably at that. Um, you know, I guess that's a way not to focus on ourselves, and, and that's ultimately what I did. And it, and it culminated with my parents and my brother eventually not talking to each other for many, many years and still to this day. But I felt responsible for all that. I mean, I, I was put on this earth to, to save and to help and, and to do all this other stuff. That followed me right into medical school and residency. When I was a third-year re medical resident, I, I met my wife. Um, you know, I was drinking and drugging throughout this entire time, uh, always thinking that it was under control and I was taking care of it. And and that's not really part, uh, you know, although I'd love to go into a full story, that that's really not why I'm up here. Um, let's leave it to say that I qualified in a big way. When I met my wife, um, and this is about humility, um, her sister, her younger sister, had uh, some palpitations. We probably brought her into the hospital. Um, it, I admitted her to a cardiologist service, but being the young, dashing, uh, overconfident uh, resident, um, I really ran the case. Came up with uh, an ASD and an anomalous pulmonary venous return. Sent her off to surgery, a surgery that she really didn't even want, but, you know, I mean, I, I was in charge here. I was taking care of things, so, you know, I, I sent her off to surgery. And... 
I don't know whether I publicly exclaimed it, but I know that in my heart I felt that I had saved her life, that I was so powerful and that I was given this gift of M-deity that I could save somebody's life. Well, my wife and I went away on a vacation to Colorado, and that night she was admitted to Ratton Bay Hospital uh, with a complication from the surgery that was misdiagnosed as an acute gallbladder attack. Because of her history of drug abuse, I, I believe she was kind of, when her cries for help were echoing, uh, ignored and just given value. On Sunday, they, she was dropping her blood pressure and dropping her urine, and she coded. After they introduced the needle and got a thousand cc's of, of straw-colored fluid, somebody took a look at the x-ray, and for two days she was in cardiac tamponade. We flew back from Colorado. I was using heavily using cocaine and alcohol at that time. Um, brought her back to our hospital, where her body remained for the next two months. She was brain dead. I was the third year resident on call and, and you know, all the understanding that we see in medicine, I, uh, it was my duty through the unit, so I took care of her body for those uh, two last months. Matter of fact, as my higher power would have it, the three times she coded and the final time that we pronounced her, I was on call. And so I finally told everybody to pull the plug and stop it. Well, you can imagine what that would do to somebody who had established himself as God. Um, you know, that fueled, I, I was born alcoholic, I believe in the same sperm and egg story, you know, uh, as, as soon as they met, you know, I was born and, and I was born alcoholic and a drug addict, and I don't mean ever to detract from that. But that certainly, that incident certainly fueled, you know, uh, my anger, um, you know, how could this have happened to me, uh, da 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 And uh, eventually it, it led me years down the line where I almost took my own life, uh, um, kind of in front of my family. And, and that got me into Fair Oaks, although I was on the turbo plan of only six days uh, <laughs> and an outpatient. But it's brought me here. You know, all my thinking, my whole life of, of doing what was best for me and what was best for the world and, and what made me happy and, and getting everything that I had ever wanted in life. Uh, I got a family. I, I got a career. I, I got a business. I, I had everything that I wanted. And I was still ready to throw it all away. And, and that taught me a great lesson. Um, it, ta it taught me a lesson that I'm not God and that I have to live by his will. And for me, that, that's what step seven really means. I was going to end here with just reading a little portion of, of step seven and it says, uh, that I think relates uh, to what I, I'm talking about right now and then, then tie it in with how I've changed my life. It says, as long as we place self-reliance first, the genuine reliance upon a higher power was out of the question. That basic ingredient of all, humility, a desire to seek and to do God's will was missing. That's on page 72. You know, my dad, who's now dying of lymphoma, uh, he always used to have, um, after grace, he'd have his own little prayer that he'd say, and, and he'd want... Uh, to God to grant health and happiness. You know, if he was materialistic, I'm, I'm sure he would wish for, you know, a lot of money and cars. I never grew up that way. But he did, and I thought it was okay to wish for health and happiness, which kind of brings me back to where I started here. And I, and I used to, you know, I, I used to pray 
for health and happiness. But you know what? That that's and then when I had my back operation, I mean that shot that to, to hell. So, uh, but again, it was me looking for my will to be done, not God's. And it took me a long time to realize that. And so what I've done now, and I've changed it, where every night when we say grace, I ask for me from God to be able to accept his will for me, no matter what that means. Thank you very much, Lenny. And with step eight, I bring you Tony T. Good morning, everyone. My name is Tony. I am an alcoholic and addict. And uh, I think I'm happy and grateful to be here. When I look out and see you all, it uh, does very, very special things. I've been asked to uh, speak on step eight. And uh, when Joe called and said, would you mind uh, saying a few words on making a list and checking it twice, I said, well, I'd be more than happy to. And... uh, I went into uh, treatment at Copac in Mississippi 11 years ago. And uh, while I was there, we had to make our lists. We went through each of the steps. And uh, I went looking back into my old papers for the uh, list that I made. And uh, believe it or not, I found step eight. And step eight, I had divided into three columns. People that I had severely hurt. People who were barely scratched. And people that had screwed me. And uh, it was fascinating. It really was. I also found, I also found a copy of my revision of the big book. Now, that was important. You know, this this wasn't, talk about control, this was important. When I was at Harbor House in Mississippi, I was put on a Greyhound bus. Now, this is your physician, your pencil, your psychiatrist. And uh, I was put on a Greyhound bus, and I was met in Jackson, Mississippi, on March 21st, 1984. And uh, I said, good Lord, what am I doing here? And uh, a gentleman came and picked me up in a van and brought me to Harbor House. And uh, when I walked through the door, talk about accents. Being from New Jersey, obviously I have an accent. But I was the only individual there that had not sailed on the Mississippi, that had not worked as an oil rigger, that had not worked uh, in the catfish yards. And uh, again, I said to myself, God, what am I doing here? I was brought in to meet the chief counselor. And this was, this was something that totally horrified me. There was this man sitting in the chair. He was must have weighed 400 pounds, six foot seven, six foot eight, bald hair, and said, Welcome, son. This is where you need to be. 
And uh, again, I said, God, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? So he says, son, we're going to sign you to cleaning up dishes after we all get done eating. He said, that's going to be your job for the first three weeks. I said, uh, can I call my wife? He said, son, he said, you can't use the telephone for the next six weeks. I looked for God. I said, God, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? I was in treatment for seven months. I started at the beginning of March, and I left the beginning of August, actually six months. And uh, I was in bad shape. I really was. I was in bad shape. And each time I went before the committee to be discharged, they said, are you ready? Tony, are you ready? And initially my response was, yeah, absolutely I'm ready. So I stayed another month. <laughs> and uh, I was at a meeting in the beginning of August, and uh, my counselor came up to me at the meeting, just tapped me on the shoulder. He said, uh, you're going home tomorrow. And uh, I was scared. I was really, really scared. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had found a new home for six months. I had found a place where I was safe, where I learned to become honest, where I was grateful, and I didn't want to go home to my wife and my three children. I was scared. And I went home, and I went to my first IDA meeting in 1984, and uh, I still look at my list. And to me, even now, 11 years later, the list to me means honesty. When Joe spoke with me and said, uh, speak briefly about the eighth step, I had to do my own inventory again. I had to look at my list again to the people that I had not really made any amends to because I was scared. And even now, I started playing some old tapes, tapes that I had not played for years. And one of the old tapes was the fact that the woman that I went home to 11 years ago is no longer my wife. And uh, I had yet to ask her forgiveness. I had yet to say I was sorry. I had yet to say that I've lived with this for so many years, but I have yet to say to you that it was my fault, it was me. I am married now six years to a wonderful woman who has been active in recovery. And she has given, given me the opportunity to understand honesty. And for those of you who are active in Al-Anon, 
she knows who she is. She knows her name. She has helped me redo my list. She has helped me understand that these old tapes have to be looked at, have to be evaluated, and people have to be said, I'm sorry, I really am. Honesty is a very difficult situation. Lists will come up over and over and over again. I'm sure we all have lists. And it's very important for us, for me, it's very important for my recovery to understand who I am and where I came from. Recently, I was giving a lecture, and one of my med students said, uh, Doc, he said, why do you still go to AA? I stopped and I looked at him. I said, I go to AA because I need to constantly remind myself who I really am. That I am an alcoholic, that I'm an addict, that I learn to grow every day, and that honesty has to be a part of my life ongoing. I'm glad to be here. I thank Joe for allowing me to share with you. And uh, I'm sure we are always making, making lists, and it's very important. I've also been asked to share that if those of you who are here enjoying yourself have forgot to look at your list, and for some reason you have forgotten to register, please do so. Honesty is wonderful. Thank you, and God be with you all. Good morning. I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I'm glad to be here. Um, I, I'm somewhat nervous, so I, I think I better <clears throat> start by telling a joke. Um, this guy who, uh, who was a known alcoholic uh, had a birthday, and his uh, his wife uh, gave him a new shirt for his birthday, and he put it on. He looked pretty good, and his buddy came over and said, hey, let's go down to the bar and, and have a beer, and uh, his wife didn't want him to go because she knew what would happen, and he says, we're just going to have one, honey, and then we'll be right back, so they go down to the bar. They have one. Then they have four, then they have 12, then they had 19, 20 beers. Uh, he got drunk and threw up on his new, uh, his new birthday shirt. And he was all bummed out and his buddy says, don't worry. He said, uh, take a new $20 bill, put it in your shirt pocket, and when you go home, tell your wife that I threw up on your shirt and that the $20 is from me for the dry cleaning bill. And he says, okay, I'll do that. And so he goes home, he walks in the front door, and his wife took one look at him, and she goes, what happened to you? And he says, oh, Charlie got drunk and uh, threw up on my shirt. And he hands her the shirt. He said, he gave me 20 bucks uh, for the dry cleaning bill. It's in the pocket. 
And she looks in there and, and she says, uh, well, there's two $20 bills in here. What's the other $20 bill for? He says, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you, he shit in my pants, too. <laughs> um, as far as the ninth step goes, made direct amends uh, wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Uh, I was, I have given this matter uh, some thought. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of got a little list that, that, I, that I did not physically write it down for this particular talk. I, uh, at the time I went through treatment, at the time I did my eighth and ninth steps, I, I did a list, and that's not to say that I have done the eighth and ninth step and there's no reason for me to redo it. That's not true. But uh, the first the first group of people to, to whom it was the most difficult to make direct amends to, uh, they were the people that were closest to me. My family, my especially my wife and my parents, and other people who had the great misfortune to be closely related to me. Um, obviously, these were people that I couldn't just say, hey, I'm sorry, you know, because they'd heard it a hundred times before. Um, only by uh, the daily practicing of all the steps uh, in my life, day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. That's the only way I can make amends to those people. I think that they know now that, uh, uh, that I was, I was very sick, uh, when I did a lot of those things. And, uh, the way I look at it is that, uh, all my character defects and all the things that I that I did back when I was using are just all all variations on the central theme of selfishness in my life, and that everything I did was just purely for selfish reasons. And if it didn't have have what I wanted uh, as the central reason for doing it, you know, then I didn't do it. You know, unless it, unless it was something that I wanted or I needed, I didn't I didn't do it. You know, I I did not do the right thing back then. Um, I get most of my AA and mainstream AA. We don't have too much of a docs group around where I live, and I've seen a couple people that have had. Um, you've probably seen it too. It says. Uh, it's a T-shirt that says "Instant Asshole." Just add alcohol. <clears throat> that doesn't apply to me. I already was an asshole into which I poured alcohol. Um, I knew full well what I was that what I was doing was wrong. I always had a little voice in the back of my head telling me that you're not living the right way. You're not doing the right thing. Straighten up your act. Get help. Do whatever you need to do, but stop behaving this way. And I couldn't. 
I, I could not think my way out of my moral dilemma. Um, the best definition of insanity that I've ever heard, and I think it applied to me, uh, was knowing full well the difference between right and wrong and then going ahead and choosing the wrong anyway. That's, that applies to me. I knew what was right and wrong, and I did the, and I did the wrong thing. Uh, I hope that uh, I'm confident that that the uh, the behavior, the the beliefs, the practices that we we hold as dear in AA uh, will help me overcome and and reverse uh, some of the bad things I did when I was out there using. Um, I'm thankful that my children uh, never saw me intoxicated. Um, I think that uh, you know there were there was one amend there there was probably let me say this there was probably about four or five amends that I had to do that weren't uh, to people close to me but were to other people that had the great misfortune to know me at the time. And one of these was the dean of admissions at the medical school I went to. Uh, my first, I went to medical school in Guadalajara, Mexico for three and a half years. And then I transferred with advanced standing into a medical school in Ohio. And I was the first guy they ever took. I knew that I owed, I owed the dean of admissions an amend because it was when I finally transferred back to that American medical school, medical school that I crashed and burned. And it was about uh, four years ago um, that I went to see him. I didn't have an appointment. I just thought, here I am. I better go see him and make my amend. So I went up, and he wasn't in his office. And his secretary goes, oh, he'll be back in a minute. Just have a seat. So I'm sitting there outside his office on a chair like this, and I see him coming from clear across the office. It's a very big building. I could see him coming, see him coming. Here he comes. Now he sees me. He didn't look at me. He didn't smile. He just had his head down and goes, Robert, when, when he passed me, I thought, oh boy, this is going to be hard. And so I go in and sit down and I, I apologize to him. I said, I, I would like to apologize for my behavior while I was a medical student here at Toledo. And he looked at me and goes, he goes, what are you talking about? I said, I said, I was an idiot. I said, I cut classes. I made excuses. I didn't do this. I didn't, you know, I shirked all my responsibilities. And, uh, you guys put up with me and you, uh, you gave me my degree. And he goes, well, you weren't that bad. You know, and, and I finally told him what I had been through and, and what had happened to me and how I'd gotten sober. And, and, uh, that we basically, it ended up we had about a two and a half hour conversation. And he told me, he told me stories about all the crazy people that went to medical school there and their parents and just just all kinds of uh we had all kinds of wonderful one-on-one -on -one fellowship for about two and a half hours and i walked out of his office on cloud nine uh and that was my that was my most recent amend up until about one week ago uh joe called me on the phone about six weeks ago and asked me if i would be willing to talk on one of the steps and I said, yeah, um, I, I'd like to. Uh, do I have a choice? Can I pick my step? He said, no. He said, as a matter of fact, we only have one left. 
And I said, it's got to be step nine. He said, how did you know? Um, and so I, you know, I, I, of course, procrastinated right up until the very end uh, on, on doing some, something for step nine. But a, but a really strange thing happened to me just about a week ago. There was, there was a guy who was extremely close to me when I was in medical school. We were very good friends. And he just happened to be somebody that, that was in my way of something I needed. And I used him. I, I didn't treat him very well. Uh, it was, you know, shameful, uh, what I did to this guy. Just, just because of selfishness for no other reason. And I, and for years and years, I felt really bad about this. You know, that I had, I had ruined a friendship. And then, uh, I got a call, I got, I was seeing patients and, uh, whenever there's a doctor on the line, the secretary's up front, punch in over the intercom, doctor so and so's on the phone. And, and I heard that they said doctor so and so was on the phone. I hadn't heard that name since medical school and my knees just about gave out. I thought, oh my God, what's this going to be about? So I said, okay, I'll pick it up. And I walked into one of the back rooms where there's nobody in there. I shut the door. I say a little prayer. I press the button. I said, Dr. Reeves. And, and, and this guy's voice came over real warm and friendly. And the, the very first thing he said is, I owe you a big apology. <laughs> and I said, I said, Pete, I said, everything that happened was all my fault. And, and we ended up having about a 20 minute conversation. Um, and it was just like, it was just like the way I felt when I walked out of that guy's office at the medical school. Um, you know, that, that was, uh, <clears throat> that was a gift from God. It wasn't something that I deserved. Um, to, to have him call me and ask me how I was and, and to give me the chance to, uh, apologize. Um, was uh, was really a gift. The other thing I wanna I wanna say just briefly uh, is that um, I'm a recovering golfer. Uh, I, I I have a difficult time with it. Um, when I got back from playing golf last night, I, I sat down on the couch in the uh, in the room where I'm staying, and my wife was on cloud nine because she just got to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And uh, and then she says, well, how was your day? I said, probably the worst five hours I've had in my life in the past ten years. And she goes, why? I said, I played golf just terribly. I said, it was as bad as I was when I was 14 years old. Um, why do I do this to myself? I have no idea. I'm sure it's something related to my, uh, my addictions. Um, nothing can fill, fill me with self-loathing quicker than, than a game of golf, um, and I and I thought I and I finally decided last night that the only real way out of my dilemma was simply to give up the game. It's very expensive and time-consuming to play golf, and so I I thought that I should you know I should quit, um, but I probably wouldn't be able to do this alone. I'd probably have to enter some sort of a long-term care facility to to get this done, but. But then this morning I saw a couple of the guys I played with and they all had these sheepish grins on their faces. And they said, oh boy, yesterday was really terrible, wasn't it? And I said, yeah. Yeah, it was. Didn't you have a good time either? Oh no, it was really bad. And uh, so so I, I do think there's hope. 
and uh, uh, maybe I don't have to quit after all. Maybe I can just do it now and then when I'm in the mood and control it. I, I don't know. Um, but anyway, this is this meeting is very important to to my family and to me, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you.